The king folds her own laundry, chauffeurs herself around Washington in a 1992 Honda, and answers her own phone and her boss's phone too. That's speaking of a woman who is actually the king of the town in Ghana that she grew up in, Atuam, Ghana. She, Peggy Lean Bartles is and still is, as far as I could tell, the, a secretary in the embassy, Ghanaian embassy in the United States. And several years ago, I believe it was 1992, her uncle, who was the reigning king, the reigning ruler in her village of, that she came from of about 7,000 people, he died. And the elders of that town did what they have always done to find the replacement. True story. They gather together and they pour schnapps on the ground... And they wait as they say all the names of all the relatives of the king who just died. And when that schnapp starts to bubble in the ground, whatever name they say becomes the king. And that's what happened. That's how Peggy Lean Bartles became king of Atuam, Ghana. Now, she has kept her job in the, the, the embassy But she is truly the king, and she goes back every year on her coronation, and when she retires, she intends to go back there full time. And when she goes back, she makes decisions. She has authority. She oversees a thousand-acre estate that her family owns and all of the the goings-on that go around that. She inhabits an eight-bedroom mansion. She has a staff and a chauffeur. And when she's in the United States, she's a United States citizen, and she goes to an office, and she works. But she is the king, you see. And she was chosen king in the proper manner. Elected, if you will. And we hear that story and many people would think, well, that's a cool story. How many times do you hear about that? I wonder what her work life is like. And well, don't you have any objections for her being elected king? Well, no, they did it the right way. They did it the way they'd always done it. All the elders were the, of the community were in agreement. The people love it. She is ruling. She's reigning. She's doing what she's supposed to do. But then if you said, oh, so you don't have any problem with the sovereign God who elects his people. No, no, wait a minute there. That goes a little bit far, don't you think? I mean, I, I'm a believer, but I chose Christ. When we get into the midst of election as a biblical doctrine, the choosing factor isn't received quite as well among some evangelicals. So I wonder today how you rectify and settle the fact of election in your own life. Is it something that you say you read in scriptures and you, you say it's there, but really you just don't like the fact that God would elect some? Because if he's going to elect some, then that must mean that he doesn't elect others. And I serve a loving God. You ever been in conversations like that with people? Have you ever had that feeling yourself? When I come up with people who say, I don't believe in election, I ask them if they read their Bibles. Because the question is not whether election is in the scriptures. It's clearly there. The question is, what does it mean? And will we bow our hearts and minds to the truth that God is sovereign in every area of life, especially in salvation? So this morning, this may be something that's not a challenge for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've, 
You've just like, nobody's ever preached on election before. What's this guy going to say? Maybe your, your stomach is turning a little bit right now. Maybe you agree with it, but don't understand it. Maybe you might be in all kinds of different situations, but this is the prominent focus of our text today, that God is in charge of who he will save. He is in charge of who, what he will do with his enemies. He is in charge of how he will redeem his people, when he will redeem his people. He is in charge of who his people are. And it drives forward Isaiah's argument of the Holy One of Israel and an encouragement to the people of Judah and an admonition to repent for the people of Assyria and for us today, a time of worship. I don't know about you, but wasn't it glorious hearing us recite all of those biblical verses about about the scripture teaching on God's sovereign election? To hear you say that over and over, all of, the, all of that came directly out of Scripture. I hope you saw all the references at the end. If you didn't recognize them, everything that you said together was directly from Scripture. Some of them were the passages, the questions that were asked, were asked right in the text. Or they were in response to Paul saying, just in case you're wondering this, let me give you this teaching. I, I, I wanted to just stop there and just start preaching. It was glorious to hear us in community say that. So let us come to this text this morning and and grow in our ability to love and worship our sovereign God, grow in our thanksgiving to him that, that he is completely in control of salvation of his people and grow in our understanding of what the text means for us today based on those true characteristics of God. Let's stand together as I read. Our text from Isaiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth or the land. Therefore, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And Yahweh of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat or the oil. He has come to Iath. He has passed through Migron 
at Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Laisha. I did practice this. O poor Anathoth. Madmena is in flight, and inhabitants of Jabin flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. If you've never read in public like that with those names... That would be my wish for my worst enemy, I think. (laughs) No matter how much you practice and can say it over and over and over, I stand in front of you and I look at it and I can't see the page. I I don't know what what vowel comes with. And I even had the pronunciation written down for one of those and had to stumble over it. So I'm thankful you are a loving congregation. In these verses, we are shown two promises the Lord God of hosts makes to his remnant. Two promises the Lord God of hosts makes for his remnant. That's my way of taking all of these verses and hanging them together. As we said last week, these verses 20 through 34 actually are tied very closely to chapter 10, 5 through 19. Remember last week that when we looked at at God's movement toward Assyria, he said they were his rod and his staff to use as he saw fit to bring judgment against his rebellious people. But the king of Assyria had different means. He had different ideas. That wasn't what he wanted to do. He wanted to, to be more powerful and overtake more nations. And we saw his arrogant boasting over the fact that he had already taken some communities and why couldn't he take another community? And boasting that these communities had more idols and worshiped them, those idols more fervently than Judah did. And he overtook them, so why wouldn't he be able to overtake Judah? He was placing himself in the seat of God. He was more powerful than their gods. He will be more powerful than Judah's God. And he was braggadocious. And the scriptures take him to task. And and the Lord says, the Lord takes to task what he is saying to himself. He's he's saying that he is so powerful that he plunders these, these nations just as easy as a human would go through the forest and take the eggs out of a nest. No one chirps against him. Nobody raises a wing or a beak against him. So God says he will come against him because what? What right does the axe have to to talk about the one who wields the axe, about how he should wield it? And he, he brings, the Lord brings him down and says he will meet his destruction and there will be so few people left when the Lord is done with him that a small child who's just being ready to count, beginning to count, could number the amount of people left standing. So in the midst of that, God turns to his people. And he reminds these people that he is always working to provide a remnant. Now, we'll back up just a little bit and remind ourselves something we learned several weeks ago 
that we, as we constantly see this, this judgment and hope and judgment and hope and the constant references toward the remnant, whether it uses the word remnant or not, there's these references toward the people that God will preserve. And we need to remind ourselves that God is preserving the people in this old covenant situation because the Messiah comes from this people. The Messiah comes from the line of Judah. The Messiah is the one who will sit eternally and as the rightful heir of David's throne. So as he preserves his people, he's preserving those who are obedient, but he's also preserving them to an end because the promise in Genesis is that the seed of the woman would overcome the seed of the serpent. That's the promise all the way back in Genesis and that will happen through the Messiah who comes from the line that God is preserving in this remnant. So this isn't just Oh, here's another time where God's people are reminded that there is a remnant, and if they're good, they can be part of that remnant. We're reminded of the bigger picture of God's promises and his plan to make those promises come true because God is a God who never changes. So the way we've, we're going to look at this this morning in these two promises, God will save his remnant and God will preserve his remnant. And we'll, we'll see this unfold for us. The first promise, God will save his remnant the remnant will lean in truth on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, rather than the king of Assyria. We see that right in verse 20. In that day, now this, this is the day that God is coming against Assyria. Remember, in the scheme of Isaiah, we, we may or may not have already had this happen, but we have this, this wicked king Ahaz going to the king of Assyria and wanting the king of Assyria to give him protection because the kings of Syria and Samaria, the northern kingdom, want the southern king to align with them and fight with him. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. So he goes to Assyria, and he's either already done that in, this, in chapter 10 of Isaiah, or he's about to do that. And God is saying, this is what's going to happen to Assyria. But at the same time, he wants us to see that there is this movement that he is involved in of saving his obedient people as well. And so he's given this destruction forecast for, the, for Assyria, and now he moves in. Still some words about Assyria, but mostly about the people in the southern kingdom. In that day, verse 20, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on Yahweh the Holy One of Israel, in truth. So they will, they, their, their assessment of their situation will be truthful. They're leaning on putting their, their trust in Yahweh instead of the king of Assyria will be in truth because they would recognize that God is the king of kings and Lord of lords. It's not any earthly king that God is more powerful than all of them. And so he's saying in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob, they won't lean on the Hillman king anymore. They will lean on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. Again, that language that we're going to see many times in Isaiah that Clearly, Isaiah's call in chapter 6 affected him, where he constantly looks at Yahweh and thinks of his holiness and calls him the Holy One or the Holy One of Israel or the Holy One of Jacob throughout the book. Now, this is a lesson that many, many nations have to learn. This is a lesson the church needs to keep in mind. The, we, we in the United States are not Israel. The church is not Israel. So, we still look at this text and we say this is kind of a universal text, isn't it? Because God doesn't change in the way he deals with nations. He expects nations and their rulers to uphold what he has set forth because he's the king of the universe. 
He expects them to do that. If they don't, he holds them accountable. This is why Paul can say in the New Testament that we are submitted to the authorities appointed over us because their job is to punish evil and reward those who are doing good. And if we are his people, we're pursuing righteousness, then we should be protected in that. And when that is not happening, God will act. He will act. The problem is he doesn't act in our timing sometimes, does he? Sometimes we wish he'd act a little bit quicker, and there's nothing wrong with God praying to God that his righteousness would, would um, flood this earth now instead of later, and then we leave it up to him. But we see this happening throughout. We saw this happen in the church, through the church at large in our own country several decades ago when certain groups of people tried to make partnerships in the government. They thought if they could have a seat at the table in the government and, and be involved in that, that they could shape the government in their liking. And they, they ended up putting their trust in the government instead of the God of the government. And we know they did this because they've written about it since then and said we made a mistake. We were definitely too much influenced by our influence over the government. Now, there's nothing to say that if you're called into politics that you shouldn't go into politics. Live your life in a godly way and go into politics and live and rule as God commands. But we don't put our trust in that. We put our trust in the God who has placed you there. We see this happening today as well with, with leaders throughout in the last couple of years, leaders placing their, their trust in the government rather than what the word says, making decisions based on the government instead of what the word says, giving up the authority in the local church and in our families because the government says we'll do something different. And God is realigning Christianity in part, in part because of that. Because people are recognizing that and they're going to places where people worship God and trust God for the outcome in these wacky times. So this is a universal principle for us. God deals with nations this way. He deals with us this way. Will we be ones who place our trust in Christ or something else? Now, it may not be the government. That's our direct application here. But it could be a million other things that you put your trust in. Amen? It could be your 401k. It could be your kids. It could be your family. It could be your job. It could be your viewpoint of community. It could be your viewpoint of church. It could be anything that you put forward first and you begin to pursue and worship that, the created thing, rather than the creator who blessed you with that. There's a subtle difference in our own hearts that we need to constantly be aware of that we assess our situation in truth. Remember who God is and what he has promised and how he is the king of the universe, ruler of all, and then lean on him in truth rather than anything else. That doesn't mean we don't pursue jobs and we don't manage our money well and we don't raise our children well. But if God sees fit to take any of that away, our worship doesn't change because it's not in the created thing. It's in the creator who gives us. The Lord God taketh and he gives, but he's still the Lord God. So we can't even get out of the first verse before Isaiah is speaking to us here in our own lives and how we raise our children, how we respond in our church, how we respond in our jobs and to the government and, and, and in our own life and where our trust and our sustenance is. We could just stop right there and probably have another worship service of repentance. But 21 follows verse 20, doesn't it? God will save his remnant. The remnant will lean in truth on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, rather than the king of Assyria. Secondly, the remnant will return to their mighty God. Look at verse 21. 
So when it, when it talks about the remnant of Israel, now we're going to learn more about it. A remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Now, this is important for us to see. This isn't just, we, in the scheme of Isaiah, as he's bringing us this revelation of God, and we are beholding God bit by bit, little by little, we recognize we've seen that word before, haven't we? We've seen this idea of the mighty God. If you remember just a couple of pages back in chapter 6, for, or in chapter 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we've already had shown that, yes, Yahweh is the mighty God, but the one he will send, the Messiah, is the mighty God as well. The one who will be born, the one who will rule eternity, he is the mighty God as well. So when we see this idea of mighty God, it's important for us to mark in our mind because it helps us understand the rest of the passage. So God will save his remnant. And the remnant is the people who return, the people who are of Jacob, the people who are returning to their God. And to return to the God is not returning with rebellion. It's not returning with their own idols in their back pocket. It's not returning um, without repentance. Remember, this is the nation who has walked away. Remember what we've learned just in these first few chapters of Isaiah, how the nation has turned away from God and God has already judged them. He has already placed... Um, bad rulers among them because that's who they wanted. So they're returning, but they're returning to the mighty God, which means they're returning repentant. They're returning um, trusting in him and him alone. They're not returning just, well, I guess this is a better place to go than that, keeping their idols in their back pocket. They're returning as true worshipers of Yahweh. Third, the remnant will return, but the rest will meet destruction overflowing with righteousness. Look at verse 22. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, okay, so there's the Abrahamic promise for us, right? Um, there's going to be a lot of them, but we are looking at physical Israel here. Remember, as Paul says, not all Israel is true Israel, right? There's a physical Israel who are circumcised, who, who, who may outwardly obey certain things, and there's the spiritual Israel, Israel who have circumcised hearts. We see that delineation here. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Many Israelites, small number that are part of the remnant. And we see this. We don't have to go through. We could go through the entire Old Testament and find how often Israel is disobedient to their God. Even as God redeems them and gives them a land and, and, and tells them that he will oversee their overtaking this land. And yet they're constantly wonky. They're constantly coming back. But amongst all of that, there's always someone being obedient because there are those with circumcised hearts. This verse puts that, I'm not saying how small, the scriptures aren't saying how small, but we can see it in the language. There are many physical Israelites, but only a remnant of them will return. And then one of the most overwhelming and striking phrases in the book of Isaiah, destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. Oh, do we need to learn that concept, do we not? God promises that he will lead. 
He will reign and he will destroy his enemies. And in this age, we're seeing that happen already and not yet. Sometimes they're destroyed, sometimes they're not. It's a progression that God is working all things out to the counsel of his will, summing up all things in Christ. And on the last day, there will be the total victory. There will be everything that the Bible says is promised. We're seeing it in shadows and already not yet now. So it's wonderful for us to realize it's decreed, which means God has set it forth. He has said it will happen. And if God, who is truth, who doesn't change, decrees something, is there any question about whether it will happen? There is no question. So he's decreed destruction, but this destruction is overflowing with righteousness. Why is that? Because our God is a righteous God. He is holy. Everything he does is righteous. This is why when you get to heaven, when you get to the new heavens and new earth, you are not going to mourn people that are not there. You, you won't do it. Because when you get there, you will have the perfection of knowing that everything, not just knowing in your head, but knowing in your heart that everything God does is righteous. It's perfect. It's just. And we're not going to celebrate that they're not there, but we're going to worship God in his holiness. And we're going to worship God in his perfection that every decision he has made is right. And we will be thankful. And if that's going to be the case on that day, what should we do on this day? We know this. It's right there. His judgment, his destruction of his enemies is decreed, and that destruction overflows with righteousness. Those who have eyes to see can look at God coming against his enemies and see righteousness because we know it's the work of God. It is not merely the work of men. It is not merely the sin of men or the work of men. Even when God raises up a nation, it is not the nation. We just learned that last week with Assyria, right? It's not the nation, it's the God behind the nation. Look at verse 23. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. And maybe that should be better translated land. The Hebrew word can be earth or land, and both are true. In this local context that we have here, it is throughout the land, right, where Israel is, is promised to come back to, where the remnant will come back to. But in overarching history, the earth fits, right? Because that's what God is doing throughout the whole earth because he is king over the whole earth. The entire earth is his rule and reign. So he will make a full end as decreed. In, in case we need reminding, God has decreed this. Twice in two verses, we're reminded that God has decreed. He has, made, he has made a statement that is valid and lawful and that he will carry out. It's not a suggestion. It is something that will be done. And it's all under his sovereign control. And I keep harping on it. You say, man, Pastor Rob, you're saying that over and over and over. Do you need help remembering that sometimes? There are times that I need help remembering God is sovereign even over this mess that I can't figure out how to do, that's overwhelming me, that I'm getting frustrated about, that I'm getting angry about, that I've been hurt by. God is, he's sovereign over that as well. Maybe you never need reminded. So if you don't, I'm reminding me today, God is sovereign. He has decreed everything that's going on and he will abide by his own character. And even when he destroys his enemy, it overflows with righteousness. 
Well, we see clearly in these verses, before we even get to 24 and following, we see clearly this idea that God has chosen a people. He has elected a people, and his purposes will not be thwarted. Verse 22 is cited in Romans 9. We've recited much of Romans 9, not a lot of Romans 9 to each other this morning in our responsive reading on election, but I want you to turn there. Keep your finger there in Isaiah chapter 10, but turn to Romans 9. Many things we could dissect and identify in Romans 9, 10, and 11, but our eyes and our thinking is on this idea of God's sovereign choice and his right to do so. So we have already read this, this section there in, in uh, verses 9, or 10, 11, 12, 13. And some of the questions that I asked as the leader in that responsive reading come right out of this, and you gave the answers to them. But I want to start in verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And this follows the, the example of, of uh, Moses and Pharaoh as well. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, when we stop there, we can say, that question can be asked in multiple ways, can it? It could be an honest question. Have you ever asked that? Well, then how does God find fault with people? In your journey to your theology of today, didn't you come to one point where you needed to ask that? that? That reasonable question? And so it could be asked that way or it could be asked in a rebellious way. The assumption is the answer is rebellious. And it may be, this, or the question is rebellious. And it may be that that question at all in asked in any way is considered rebellious given the flow of the text. Look at verse 20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? And that answer back is a, it's a rebellious argumentation back to him. Who are you to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. This is why I think the ESV translates Isaiah 10 as earth. It's because of the way it's, it's used by Paul in Romans 9. And as Isaiah predicted, verse 29, here he's citing from uh, chapter 1, verse 9. If the Lord of hosts did not left us offspring, 
at a seed, why we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is the righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as, it were, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So these verses can make us uncomfortable. But Paul chooses right out of Roman, or Isaiah chapter 10 and also Isaiah chapter 1, he chooses these verses to make his case. Now, in, in the argument that Paul is making, Paul is, is combating the question, has the word of God failed? Because so many Jews in Paul's time are rejecting Christ. Has the word of God failed? And, and he is making this whole argument to show that it has not failed. He has always intended to save a people for himself. And he's done it according to what he has seen fit to do. And he uses himself he's, even as example. I'm, I'm exhibit number one that God's word has not failed. Because I, I am a Jew. I used to be a rebel. And now God has brought me to himself. So he's using himself as that example. Now, as we go on and progress through this whole argument, there are different debates on, on what's going to happen when the Lord returns, on how many Jews will come to faith and what that will look like. But the promise is that no Jew and no Gentile who is chosen by God will be unsaved. That's his point. All Israel, true Israel, will be saved. All the Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ, not stumbled over the stumbling stone, they will be saved. And Paul's whole purpose is to say, the word of God has not failed. I want to take that argument away from you. Now, if at the end of this age there are many Jews, a lot of Jews who come to faith, which is the way some people read these verses, if there are many Jews who come to faith, they are not coming as a nation with national pride. They are coming as individuals, as those who profess faith in Christ and do not stumble over the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the stumbling stone, the cornerstone that was placed. Paul is showing all the way through 9 through 11 that there are no Jews and there are no Gentiles who are elect of God because God does what he wants for his own pleasure and has the power to carry it out so none of the elect will be lost. That's why Jesus can say, all the Father gives to me, I will not lose one. Because if the Father gave them to the Son, then the Father has provided the way through election, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world, through election to make sure that those people will be the ones who are glorified at the end of that golden chain in Romans chapter 8. So these are encouraging things. If we don't hold on to the idea of God's sovereign choice, then somewhere in the middle of there, man's in charge. And I don't know about you, but I don't like that. I don't want me in charge. I don't want you in charge. I want God in charge because his word promises us that before the foundation of the world, he predestined, he foreknew, and he elected a certain group of people to himself. And there's all kinds of pushback on that because we as human beings don't want to be left out of the loop. We want credit right? We, we, want, we want to claim credit. I know God's sovereign, but I, anytime we get into that position, we're in trouble, are we not? I know God, but, especially when it's but I, 
That's the worst place for us to be. So the question can come, and it's, it's addressed in Romans 9, but let's bring it in, more modern, um, in, in a more modern look. Somebody, I think it was John Stott many years ago, used the idea of, of a bunch of people that are on a steamship headed to Liverpool. You know, back in the day when they would have traveled transatlantic crossings more by boat, and they were headed to Liverpool, that main point, port over there in the UK. And along the way, the ship is headed to Liverpool. That's its direction. That, that's where it's going. It's not going to be deterred from that. But along the way, everybody on the ship, they're doing what they want. They're making choices for breakfast, what they're going to wear, when they walk the deck, what they read, the friends that they make. They're making their own choices all along the way. But the ship is still steaming to Liverpool. And use that as the idea of this, this tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The ship is, now it'll break down, right? You're all thinking about the Titanic already. It may not make Liverpool, right? But the idea is there. They're not in charge of the ship. The ship has its mission. The ship has its plan, and it's heading to Liverpool. And along the way, they're making all these decisions, but they're not affecting the outcome. And you may say, well, that doesn't answer the question, because how do the people get on the ship? Bet there's a lot of people on the dock saying, wait for me, wait for me, I want to go. And that's just not the case, is it? The other way to describe this, um, it may be a C.S. Lewis thing. I was talking to somebody. I can't remember who it was. I was talking to somebody who said that this came right out of C.S. Lewis, one of C.S. Lewis's novels. Um, I'm sorry? No, no, it, it's not that. But the idea, I don't know if it comes from that or not. I've not read it. I think it was The Great Divorce. Um, I've not read that, so I don't know if it comes from that or not. But the picture of a bus. And God, Christ is driving the bus, and he's driving it through all lost humanity. And as he drives through all lost humanity, the picture that some people have is that everybody would want to get on that bus, but Jesus is the one that must be shutting the door in some people's face. He doesn't stop at certain stops. And when some people want to get on, he says, well, I'm not going to take you. If my bus is full or something like that, as if everybody wants to get on that bus, where the reality is there ain't nobody wants on that bus. That bus is coming through, the Messiah bus, the Jesus bus is coming through, and everybody's running the other way, and they're shaking their fists, and they're saying, leave me alone. You are not Lord of my life. I want nothing to do with you. And God, in his loving kindness, before the foundation of the world, chose some, a few, out of that crowd and said, I will gather you to myself. Those people get on the bus willingly, willingly, because their hearts have been changed. Their hearts have been regenerated. They now beat after God. They're now, they're now living. They willingly get on the bus. Everybody else, they are willingly running away from that bus, and they don't want anything to do. So it is the loving kindness of God in his mercy. And here's the only reason that I find in Scripture that he's given, to the praise of the glory of his own grace. Why did he choose some and not others? Ephesians 1 says three times, to the praise of the glory of his grace. It brings glory to him to do what he has done. So we've parked here a little bit. A, a, a strong doctrine that is taught in our text that needs a little bit more um, emphasis for us this morning. We've parked here a little bit, but I want to tell you it makes a difference in our life. Because if God has elected us, first of all, it's not up to us to save us, which means we can't lose our salvation. Amen? God has done it. All that the Father has given to the Son, he will not lose any. So when we're fighting that overwhelming depression that can come sometimes to think, I don't even know if I'm saved. I know my heart. I know what I've done. I know how many times I'm going back to the same putrid trough of sin, and I'm sorry about it, but I do it again. I must not even be saved. 
You have been chosen from the foundation of the world. And you've been chosen to walk in holiness, according to what Ephesians 1 says. And it's not left it up to you. He's given you the ability as believers to pursue him and walk in his grace and walk in obedience. He said, this is what you do. You trust in Christ, whose work is finished. All the wrath of God has been placed upon him. The death that you deserve, he died. And so now it's for you to walk in the good works that are planned beforehand from the foundation of the world. And you do that through the power of the cross, through the power of Christ. And you say, well, I've got to do something, don't I? Yes, you pursue Christ and crucify sin. That's, I feel like I'm having our home group again. For those of you who are at our growth group on Wednesday night, we had this discussion. We pursue Christ and we crucify sin. That's Romans 6 in a nutshell. And it is evidence that you are part of the elect. If that's what you're doing, then God's saying, have confidence because you're loving the word. You're loving his people. You're following in obedience. You're loving Christ. Those are marks of believers who are on the bus because God granted them salvation and of their own free will, they come to Christ. And all the other people, they're not doing that because they hate God. That is the mark of our election is that we are pursuing Christ and crucifying sin. And every time we fail, we remember that sin was cared for on the cross. Well, if God didn't elect his people from the foundation of the world, then somebody can mess up your salvation. But that's not true, is it? From the foundation of the world, he elects his people. Well, the second half of our text is much easier or quicker to go through. Back in Isaiah chapter 10, we've looked at God saving his remnant, but now we're going to see that God will preserve his remnant. Tried to lead our thinking to that preservation idea as we've talked about election. The first thing that we see under this preserving idea is so do not be afraid. So do not be afraid. Look at verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people, isn't that great to hear again? You remember how many times we've heard the, that people or those people? talking about the rebellious ones. Now, now we feel the love coming again to the remnant, right? We, we feel the affirmation that you are still my people and I am still your God because you have come back to me. You're not trusting in man and those kings anymore. You've come back to me. Oh, my people who dwell in Zion, which is the place where God dwells, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. So we've already seen this idea of rod and staff in chapter 9. In chapter 10, remember Assyria is God's rod and staff to do what he says to do. And he says, don't be afraid of them. Don't, don't be afraid of them. They'll strike with the rod and lift with their staff against you. It's not God's staff they're lifting now, right? This is why they're being judged. It's their staff. It's their rod, as the Egyptians did. So what happened with the Egyptians? The Egyptians come after the people of God and Moses raises his hand and the waters part and his people walk through. He preserves his people and yet all the Egyptians and all of their chariots and all their leaders, then they're overwhelmed by the flood. And God says, Moses raised his arm. He says, that was my arm. That's what he's going to tell us as we go through this. So do not be afraid for I'll turn my fury from you to them as I have done for you in the past. Look at verse 25. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. That's his fury against his people because of their disobedience. And my anger will be directed to their destruction. 
This is why you don't have to fear them. I'm coming to an end. My my anger has been met. My wrath has been meted out. And I'm preserving the remnant. I will change my wrath from coming on you to coming on them. So you don't need to be afraid. It will be directed toward them for their destruction. And Yahweh of hosts, verse 26, will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. So two of these Old Testament stories, one in Midian, we've looked at a few, a few sermons ago. Remember, this is, this is um, you know, Gideon and the, the small army, the remnant of the army. That's where that comes forefront for us. 32,000 men whittled down to 10,000 men, whittled down to 300 men. And they go in because it's God that's going to get the glory in this. God goes in with the remnant of the army. He gives them the victory. The leaders run away. And then Gideon and his leaders chase their leaders, and away from where the battle was, they find Oreb and Zeb, two, two leaders, and they kill them right there. So that, that, even the details of that help us here, because this is exactly what will happen when Assyria comes against um, Judah again under the leadership of Sennacherib, another king. We'll see this in, in Isaiah 36 through 38, 9 in there. We will see this story of another Israelite, Israelite king, another Judean king, but also a different Assyrian king. And God will give the battle. He will, he will cause a sickness to come over all, the, all of the uh, soldiers. He gives the battle into the hands of his in people. The people run away. The king runs away back to Assyria, and God's people pursue him him into Syria, and his own children end up killing him in Assyria. So even the same details of the Midian chapter is God reminding his people, I'm in charge. But then he goes on in this same verse, doesn't he? And he says, his staff will be over the sea, and and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. This is God wielding his staff. Now, it was Moses that held up his arms, but God's saying, listen, I'm the one who did that. We don't worship Moses for the deliverance, do we? We worship the God of the deliverance. And he said, I've acted that way in the past. I will act that way in the future. And you can bank on it. Now, this is what we have to remember as well. We, it was so much in the nature of the Israelites to remind each other in the whoop and warp of life about what God has done in the past. Just to remind them that God is faithful and he does not change. And sometimes we need that same reminder, don't we? God always works for his own glory. He always does what is right. He always provides his people the safe trip home into the new heaven and new earth. It doesn't mean you may not suffer in this world. In fact, the New Testament writers, every single one of them presume that we will suffer if we're standing up for Christ. You may even die, just like I think there were, there were circumcised hearts, Israelites, that died under all this. There was still physical death, but their eternal salvation was secure because their hearts were circumcised. They were God's people, and he provides for them. So we need to remember that, especially as suffering gets crazy. I just want you to picture. I'm not saying this is going to happen or not happen, but what happens if tomorrow you wake up and China and Russia and Iran and Iraq have all formed um, an alliance against us and they're on our shores and they've already taken over the major cities of the East Coast? What are you going to do? Are you going to sit down in the corner and cry because we're America? We're not supposed to lose our freedom like that? If our faith is in Christ and God of the, the God of the universe never changes, then yeah, our situation may change. We have a lot of wise decisions to make, but does our faith change? 
Does our does the, the place of our sustenance change? Does the focus of our worship change? Does the God of the universe and his decrees, do they change? Nothing changes. We may, our life may change, but all it may do is bring us closer to heaven. It may be, bring us closer to f- eternal fellowship with him. And to be absent from the body and present from the Lord would be a pretty good thing in some of these ways. But if God leaves us here, he'll tell us what to say when we're drawn before the magistrates. He will give us the words to say to witness to his, about and to his son when the time comes if we meet our modern version of being burned at the stake. God will preserve his people. I'll turn my fury from you to them as I have done for you in the past and his burden and yoke will be removed. Look at verse 27. And in that day, that is the day that he switches from his fury from his people to the Assyrians, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat or the oil. Now, if it's fat, if that's the right translation, which many translations have, the only way that I can see this is the illustration is that of, of an oxen who has been so blessed with food that their neck has grown so much that the yoke breaks. And it's a symbol of God's grace to his people. I will bless you so much that this picture, you will be blessed in the same way an ox would be if they were so well fed that the yoke split. But when I looked at this word, this word, 193 times it's used in the Old Testament, and 177 of those times, it means oil. And over 50 of those 177, it means the anointing oil. And I think I agree with Calvin, who says this. Again, Isaiah reminds them of Christ, speaking about oil. And shows that through his kindness, they will be delivered from the tyranny. Anointing is the name given to that kingdom which the Lord has set apart for himself. And which he therefore wished to keep unspotted and undiminished. When the prophets intend to applaud the majesty of that kingdom, they speak of the anointing which the Lord has bestowed on it as, distinct, as a distinguishing mark. Because it was a type of Christ. And then he lists Psalm 45.7 and 89.20, Isaiah 61.1 and Daniel 9.24. Though God established the rest of his kingdom, of the kingdoms, still they were in some respects profane. This ranked above them as a holy and sacred kingdom because the Lord reigned over Judea in a peculiar manner. And because under this figure of a kingdom, he held up Christ to their view. For this reason also, it was promised to Solomon that the throne would be an everlasting throne. The prophets therefore points out the prophet therefore points out the means of overthrowing that tyranny, for it appeared as if there were no reason to believe that the yoke of so powerful a tyrant would be broken. He shows that this will arise from the heavenly anointing of that kingdom, that all may perceive that this benefit depends on the power of Christ and not on the ability of man or on chance. And I think that's what Isaiah is pointing us to. This is the reminder of the Messiah. This word is used, Calvin just alluded to it, but in Isaiah 61, we read these words. The spirit of the Lord is, God is upon me because 
Yahweh has anointed me. This is the Messiah speaking. Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Listen, the oil of gladness, our same word, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. We're having our heads turned back to chapter 9, the son who will come. And if you turn back there with me, this is the last place I'll have you turn today. Turn back to Isaiah 9 and look at the wording in verse 4. Isaiah 9, 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. See the connections, this verse with our current verses? For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle's tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For, you see the connection? This work that we're learning about in 10, we've learned about already in chapter 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Isaiah is pointing us directly to the one who will come as the Messiah, who will provide the anointing for the kingdom of God that God intends and preserve his people. Well, not only do not be afraid, but do not be misled. Though he advances toward you in great power, that is Assyria, I will advance in judgment against him in greater terrifying power. Look at verse 28. At 28, we have this list of these cities. Some of them you can still find on maps. We know where they are. And some of them we don't. But the point is that this, it's a poetic rendering of the march of the power to the one that they intend to overtake. And the cities start north of Jerusalem and they end up in Nob, just a few miles away, seven miles away from Jerusalem on a hill overlooking Jerusalem. And that's the poetic picture that they're coming down, advancing across the ridge. Even at one point, the language of setting their luggage aside so that they are free for the battle and not encumbered by all their packs. So this is what the poetic picture is, is that the army will advance. Now, if we're talking about when Sennacherib is overthrown, which we will see later in Isaiah, they actually come from the south. So it, it's, not, it's, not a, a, it's not a rendering that's supposed to depict where the army's going to come. It's a poetic picture to say, you're going to see him coming. The town's along the way. He will terrorize. You will see that. You will see him coming. He will get closer, even at the point where he stands at the closest city and shakes his fist at God. But what's he still say? Do not be afraid. Do not be worried about this because I am turning my wrath away from you and toward them. And how does that work itself out? Look at verse 33. 
Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Now, Isaiah uses this idea of this terminology of trees throughout his writing to talk about arrogant ones who will be cut low. So that's what he's saying. The king of Assyria is arrogant. We've already learned that. We've learned why he's arrogant and what God intends to do. And even though you're going to see him advancing as if he's just shunning and shutting, shoving off all of his luggage so he can use all of his strength against you, I will chop him off. And look what it says. The, uh, he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. The king of Assyria was God's axe. And he rose up against him and told God how to wield it. Now God, who is the wielder of the axe, will take it to Assyria. Yeah, the, the nod to Lebanon is just the strength of the trees, the cedars of Lebanon. So when we come to the end of this, there's no hope here for, is, uh, for Assyria, is there? The whole point of reminding us of the judgment is to give hope to God's people. It's to give hope to his people that no matter what your situation looks like, if you are in me, if you are turning to me, and we as New Covenant believers see all these nods to the Messiah, that this is the mighty God who is the son who will be born. This is, this is the, the, the one who is, is the, the oil represented by the anointing oil, the Messiah. And, and even that, the, the Hebrew word for Messiah is a cognate of that word for oil. And that we see all of this tied in. We're looking for Jesus and now we look back and we see Jesus and we see all of these truths are there for us today. God never changes. He has taken you and I, if you were professing Christ this morning, he has placed us in the kingdom of God. He has made us his children. He has put us in union with Christ so that all of Christ's benefits are our benefits. And yes, we won't see them completely until the new heavens and new earth, but we do taste them all now. And so it gives us fuel for our obedience. It gives us joy in our obedience. It lets us know that no matter what we walk through in this world, it is momentary light affliction, to use Paul's words, because the next age, the new heaven and new earth, that's where there's no more suffering, no more dying, no more tears, no more crying. We have to remember that because our God never changes. But we also need to remember that God's destruction overflows with righteousness. So if you're here this morning and you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, you've never turned away from your own sin, your own idolatry, your in truth, your evaluation of truth is you are the captain of your soul. You don't need no stinking Jesus in your life. If that's the way you've been, today is the day that you need to repent that would place you in the midst of the remnant, that would place you in the midst of all the blessings that we have just talked about. Repenting of your sin and turning toward Christ in truth, leaning on him, Trusting in him, not in anything of your own strength. You do that and you become part of the family of God. You become part of the remnant that God has promised to preserve. And you will end up in the new heavens and new earth standing in judgment instead of falling. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah who will come back and rule and reign. That promised Messiah, you will be in union with him and his blessings. Will it change all of the bad things in your life? No. Will it make you more equipped to walk through them in a way that is satisfying? Absolutely. So that is a call to you today. If you're already a believer, we're remembering God never changes. We're remembering what God has done in Christ. We're remembering our role here and how it's empowered by all of his electing graces. And if you haven't, 
Repent today. Turn to him today. And if you're still struggling with this idea of God's sovereignty and our responsibility, human responsibility, hear the words of R.B. Kuyper who describes it this way. I liken them to two ropes going through two holes in the ceiling and over a pulley above. That is God's sovereignty and human responsibility. If I wish to support myself by them, I must cling to them both. If I cling to one, to only one and not the other, I go down. I read the many teachings of the Bible regarding God's election, predestination, his chosen, and so on. I read also the many teachings regarding whosoever will may come and urging people to exercise their responsibility as human beings. These seeming contradictions cannot be reconciled by the puny human mind. With childlike faith, I cling to both ropes, fully confident that in eternity, I will see that both strands of truth are, after all, of one piece. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for your word, for the strong teaching about your character and your work and what you've done and how you have set forth your word. So we are grateful for your son, Father, that anointing oil in the language of the Old Testament. We are grateful that you have sent him according to the Old Testament promises, that he has come, he has lived and died both perfectly according to your plan. He has been faithful to you, but he's also raised again and he's seated at your right hand so that we might have life and that those of us who are in him are seated at that place with him even now so i pray that we would be fueled for our obedience that our doctrine would grow but our obedience and our love for you would grow even more for if we just understand intellectually a truth like this but we don't grow in our love and affection for you we have not fully understood your word So we are grateful, Father, that you have sent your word in this way. And as we continue through Isaiah, would you continue to have our hearts and minds open to your truth? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.